Oh. <laughs> there so. was a point in time when you sort of sat back in your chair and assumed the pose of a podcast. <laughs> I was like, oh, has he, has he surreptitiously, start, surreptitiously started recording again? Begin talking about Brad. Jack's favorite trick. <laughs> They call that the podcaster's trick. How much can he record? Yeah. Mm, mm. Yep. Also the CIA agent's trick. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yes, exactly. Um, all right. Well, here we are again. I have planted my broad beans. Not to belay this point too long. Mine are planted and they are saved from last year, which I'm very excited about because that's one of the first times I've actually done that. So we'll see. And I was told that the beans will actually be better if you save them from last year, because they'll be hardier and they know what to expect. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but yeah, yeah, they know what to expect. Yeah. They've grown in that soil last year. So so they They know what to expect. Plant genetic memory. (laughs) They know what to expect. expect. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, five feet of snow in February. Yeah. Christ. Yeah. I wonder, do you think it's based purely off of speculation? Do you think it's going to be a mild winter? (laughs) <laughs> who's speculation my yeah, own yeah speculate but, uh, <laughs> you made it sound like i was party to some speculation which i was then going to report as authoritative then yeah, go on some Let authoritative form of speculation okay i shall speculate <laughs> in an authoritative fashion um yeah yeah mild yeah that's what i think too well done <laughs> I mean, it's safe. It's a safe bet. Gl- safe global bet. warming being what it is yeah, for the time exactly. being. How doomer? Unless this is the year that like the Gulf Stream shuts down and Christ. whatever. What is the time frame for that happening? Yeah, or is that know. just like it could happen anytime? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but it's take. What's the what's the most doomer approach? Tomorrow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's already it's like the day after happening tomorrow. right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's already begun. Yeah, that's what it is. That's that. That's like the yeah. that's the total uh, climate breakdown thing, isn't it? It's already yeah. begun. And it can't be arrested. That's like the reverse. And like... we're just gonna watch it in slow motion. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's like the, I don't know what you're about to say. The reverse, like, um, what's that movie with the big storms that just happened tomorrow? Day after tomorrow. Yeah. I was gonna say it's like the reverse, like. Global warming isn't real. I went outside and it's cold. This is like, I went outside and it's cold. So the the, de- the goddamn jet stream is, it's already begun. <laughs> oh dear. Uh-huh, How uh-huh. doomery are you feeling this week? Because I'm feeling pretty doomery. I think it's because of the media cover. It's the days have gotten shorter. It's mainly that. But it's also the media coverage of the climate talks has been like intense in a way that these talks I don't think have ever been. And it's kind of made me be like, it's not seriously as they're taking it in terms of like they're not actually going to do anything to help like as seriously as it's all being taken in terms of media coverage has kind of stressed me out of it and it's just been like oh they all know that this is like a big deal yeah 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 it's almost this is the point where they'll look back on yeah well no i mean there's the period of time when we knew i mean there's a period (laughs) of time in like the 70s when the old companies knew (laughs) yeah like that's probably the point of which but then they'll be like yeah but that was capitalism and the old companies this is this is from our perspective socialist future like it'd be like yeah be like al gore that damn liberal (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. but then uh, yeah Let's pour more scorn on the bourgeois governments. Yes. And yeah, exa- you're, you're right. Like, it's it's the it's the posturing. Mm. The posturing is almost more galling than anything else, I think. It is. And even just, like... I get... and, the, and the, like, the... and the I mean, the crazy kind of, like, the Sinophobia kind of, like... Yeah, yeah. Anti-China stuff just drives me up the wall as well. Well, just all of the bullshit. Like, I mean, this is obvious, but the, like... As we are, like, a Maoist podcast. Ex- well, a... thank <laughs> you. I was going to say. Thank you. 
um just the like bullshit you know like the uk has agreed to be climate neutral by 2099 or whatever and it's just like a dog could tell you that that doesn't make any sense you know what i mean it's like oh you're climate neutral so how it's like oh we just put manufacturing somewhere else yeah we put all of the carbon stuff somewhere else and where it is we complain about those countries for being like assholes it's like yeah 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 yeah. how do people not just see right through that it's like yeah i don't know it's a joke i mean yeah i don't know fucking i don't know yeah (laughs) and this government and this country get to sort of spend some kind of narrative about us giving up using coal primarily for power in like the early 90s or whatever (laughs) and like for purely political reasons like partially i guess it was like to the, the sort of the whole process of smashing the unions and sort yeah, of destroying yeah, yeah. mining, but also like it's just far more expensive than we could and we could we could um exploit the new resources of North Sea gas <laughs> and oil. <laughs> um and yeah. just by pure fuke of like fluke of a more inexpensive fossil fuel becoming apparent at a certain period of time, yeah. we can now pretend that we've been sort of cutting yeah, our God coal bless. usage for the past 30 years and we were so ahead of the curve. Yeah. Well, like... it's clean coal now. Oh, yeah, of course. It's clean yeah. coal. Yeah. So uh, I, I like to rag on this podcast a lot about, like, ad agency people who get paid, like, seven figures to come up with a phrase like clean coal. But, like, that was actually pretty good. <laughs> clean coal was pretty good because people just go, I don't know, it's clean coal. <laughs> it's like, ah, yes, the clean coal. Yeah. What is clean coal? Uh, not using Somebody, coal. No. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not coal. Not yeah. coal. Anti-coal. Thesis. Yeah. Antithesis. <laughs> no coal. Um, what? And, and, the idea of nuclear power, Dan. Uh-huh. It's obvious. Like I don't know. I feel like you hear a lot of kind of like tankier folks be like, "Well, don't tell the libs," but like this is the future, you know? And like nuclear power, and it's kind of like. I understand the, like, argument of, like, how much energy you can get from nuclear power per, like, X amount of exploitable resources that you, like, rip from the earth. But, like, I don't know. I don't know much about this, as should be obvious, but, like, it seems like mass, you know, let's, oh, everybody just use nuclear power. Let's just go rip all of the uranium out of the ground in some poor country. Like, I don't see that being better. You know Mm. what I mean? Like... Well, yeah, I guess there is. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but it's it's always the primary question that's never asked, and it should always be asked about like what are yeah. the relationships of resource extraction that are like supplying any raw material? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I sometimes I flip back and flip back and forth. I suppose sometimes I imagine it as a sort of transitionary process, like we need to get off fossil fuels quickly. Sure. Maybe it's an answer. Mm. Um, Supposing that it's safe, the thing that's always stressed me out is just like we still have no solution to what to do with the, the waste. The waste. Yeah. Like literally, there's there's there. My understanding <laughs> is there is nowhere in the world where yeah. a permanent solution has been found to what to do with the waste. There are a few places Very, now yeah. where they're digging the most ludicrous bunkers <laughs> you've ever heard of just to, as a permanent solution. But like anything that's even been stored so far isn't permanently like yeah i mean I it's just know. buried i don't know it's, it's just like... buried yeah but like you've got you've really got to find like a geo a, a, an assuredly geo yeah. geologically inactive place to put it for forever basically jesus i mean i sometimes joke that like at some point in time like the entire surface of the earth will be resurfaced by the tectonic plates and so we really mm. don't have to worry about anything oh okay <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, it's a long time to wait for the uh, for the yeah. for the hurry up. 
Maybe we just need nuclear Throw power. Throw all the nuclear waste to get sucked back down into the mantle, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Unless we can like take it down to some fault and like bunk it all in and see what, what if happens. We can either put well, that's how you got Godzilla. <laughs> you can either do that, or you could just put nuclear powered jets on the edges of all tectonic plates and get them to move faster. <laughs> yeah, go faster. That's how. We, that's how we split California off from the rest of the country. Oh my God, it all works. It's the liberal dream. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, that's uh, the Star Trek. Well, I think of this. And then I think in the start of the future, there is some kind of like earthquake and like half of Southern California oh, yeah, just falls into yeah, the yeah. sea or something. Well, falls into the sea. <laughs> I mean, did you ever see 2012? We might have talked about this on the show before. John I did Cusack. watch it twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah. Classic watching that. They definitely made that movie for people from LA because most of it is like Melrose Avenue has been split in half and then like there goes LA and it just literally all falls into the sea. It's just like <laughs> the people of LA cheer. Because... Yeah, and they go, woo! Such is <laughs> uh, the relationship of. Um... Yeah, people from LA to the yeah. City well, they're just like take that liberal Hollywood elites. <laughs> <laughs> what are you gonna do? Uh, well, we had an interesting uh, read this week, Dan. Um, speaking of the liberal dream, we read about fascism. Mm-hmm. Ostensibly, we we found these uh, essays. One, uh, they're both by C.L.R. James. One was written in July or published in July of 1940, called "Capitalist Society and the War." And the next one was in May 1945, The Lesson of Germany. Um, and ostensibly, I think we were looking at these to kind of try and talk a bit about what we talked about last week, which was revolutionary defeatism, and uh, see how that could be applied perhaps to what Sailor James is talking about here, uh, which is World War II. Um, it wound up being a little bit different, I think. It wound up being like him kind of making part materialist analysis of what got everybody to uh to nazism and to fascism um part talking about imperialism and then kind of only briefly really touching on the subject of revolutionary defeatism and left us with some questions one very large question which we'll get to but um it was very interesting i think and i've not had much to do with like marxist talking about world war ii before um and so it was, it was It was. interesting. I think the closest that I've come, I was just telling you about this, was like back in my teenage years, uh, reading that Howard Zinn book and on war or whatever. And it's, you know, he kind of talks about like, well, dude, war like, kind of sucks. And I was like, damn, dude, war kind of sucks. Give me some more Chomsky. Um, but yeah, I know that Zinn was somebody who fought in World War II because he was like, hell yeah, let's go kick some fascist ass. Came back and was like, wow, we shouldn't have done that. That really sucked. Um, so this is interesting. C.L.R. James, under the pen name of J.R. Johnson, um, yeah, it was interesting. Not what I expected, but I think I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot, yeah, and um, I certainly appreciated um, a lot of the sort of his. I, I don't know what do you call it, historiography. I suppose yeah. the history of this period that's particularly in that longer piece that was written in 1940. Um, well, yeah, and also there were several. There were elements to the historical narrative and the historical argument that were presented that I was not familiar with. Mm. Um, and it gives a lot of, I guess, counter-argument or... I suppose one is sometimes pinned into a corner with questions of war, with the Second World War, it being particularly unique, I suppose, particularly um, particularly horrific i suppose particularly if you if one is trying to make a generalized criticism or argument around uh war and how to relate to it 
particularly if one is trying to come from a relatively pacifistic or mm. at least like um, revolutionary perspective, I suppose. The counter argument is like, what about the Second World War kind of thing? Uh, and to have it here put in this sort of like very detailed um, historical context yeah. was very illuminating. And there were, we'll get onto it, there are a few sort of aspects of that argument mm. which were entirely new to me. Mm. Um, I think what you do get here is quite a, a relatively classical sort of like Marx, Marxist or Trotskyist argument around the nature of uh, European fascism in this period of time, the nature of the Nazi regime in Germany, particularly to, it's a, 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 in a lot of ways, an effort to demystify it, to put yeah. it in a broader context. And um, I think like normalize is probably the wrong word, but certainly to tie it in with the wider political economy and geopolitics of that period of time. Yeah, and just history in general, right? Yeah. Because I mean, like the typical like boomer dad that only reads World War II books response to like, you know, the History Channel response of World War II is like ideology, dude. Like everybody, you know, the German people got swept up in this fervor after World War One of being defeated. And along came this like strapping, weird, sadist German freak. Uh, and, you know, that was and it, Hitler. Yeah. And, yeah. Who, who spoke specifically to a race of people particularly uh, susceptible to this yeah. sort of sadistic narrative kind of thing. And it, yeah. was, it was just the peculiarity of the Germans and it was yeah. just certain things specific to the fascist system which allowed this situation to play out kind of thing. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, because it's just, it's, it's weird because there is obviously, there are so many contradictions in that because one of them is like, this great man, like, coming along, like, you kind of get the, like, it could happen here, too, you know, of, like, oh, be careful, we have to protect our constitution and whatnot. Like, if someone like Hitler came along, you never know who could get swept up. Uh, but it's also just, like, again, this, like, the German people, they hungered for something like this and that there was just nothing else that could happen. Um, because as we all know, uh, material circumstances don't play into history. It is just purely ideology. Hitler's ideas mm -hmm. alone changed the world, of course. And why would we study... If we wanted to learn about how fascism came about, why would we study anything pre-1929? There's mm. just no need. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. The lesson of history is the Germans are the bad guys, right? <laughs> yeah, literally, that's the lesson. <laughs> that's like the bourgeois lesson. It's like, watch the tricky Germans. <laughs> um, I just remembered that, that Simpsons quote where it's like, all war is bad. This is Bart Simpson. All war is bad except... Star Wars and World War Two, and, <laughs> yeah. and the, uh, the uh, American War of Independence. There is three exceptions, yeah. I think. Exactly. Well, that's the typical, like, it was the last good war we fought. Like, that's what you hear in America, right? And C.L.R. James, like... <laughs> what was the last good... Oh, right. The Second World War was the yeah. last good American war. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they've been trying to relive that glory ever since. <laughs> that literally. I mean, you can get any liberal to be like, okay, Vietnam was a mistake. Korea, what was that again? Okay, yeah, that was a bit of a mistake mm -hmm, too. Mm -hmm. Okay, Iraq was a mistake mm -hmm. too. But World War II, yeah. that was the good one. Yeah. I mean, I think you actually make an astute point there. I just wanted to wheel it back a little bit because I know you said we were looking for... Uh, arguments around revolutionary defeatism as they apply to the Second World War. And uh, C.L.R. James in multiple places does espouse a kind of like revolutionary, revolutionary mm. defeatist position toward 
the Second World War, certainly. But the thing in this piece, which is more prominent as an offshoot from last week's reading from Mike McNair, is this idea of um, imperialism as the sort of highest form of capitalism. the, well, what did Lenin call it? The highest form of capitalism, at least. Mm. In this, C.R.L. James is willing to consider what the a, a next form of capitalism would be. Mm. It's interesting. That 1940s piece is almost written with a view to the idea that Nazi Germany is going to win. And mm. so much of the, the speculation in that is around what will happen afterwards or what the consequences of that will be, which I found quite interesting as a sort of counter yeah. sort of counter-history or whatever, an alternate history kind of discussion. Mm. Um but there is an extent to which so much of his analysis is couched in the idea of this being an inter- inter-imperialist war and this kind of war becoming necessary because of the internal contradictions of capitalism, as was the case with the First World War. He's suggesting that this is exactly the same to be the case with the Second World War. Um, and obviously, one of the things we'll get onto, I guess, with the end of the article when he's talking about... It, the end of the article is considering... In consideration of Germany being the likely victor, he's he's speculating on the likelihood of further inter-imperialist conflict in the future. Whereas you were just when you were just sort of giving us the rundown of all of the American <laughs> interventions of various sorts, like um, yeah. these weren't necessarily inter-imperialist conflicts. They were conflicts which support, unless you sort of consider like pseudo war, the Cold War between the USSR and the, mm. the US being inter-imperialist but like largely they were wars fought to protect or uh, further a sort of neo-colonialist um uh ec- ec- the the needs of the usa from a neo-colonialist perspective where mm-hmm. this is kind of like the death knell of the yeah the colonialist era the imperialist era kind of thing yeah i mean it's interesting, too, on that point, when he kind of talks about how this all came about, because he is basically just saying that fascism, right, is just, like, it's it's capitalism. And, like, in some of his other essays, he talks about, like, what should you do right now in 1940? You should not go fight in this war. You should stay home, and you should try and build socialism, because you're either going to fight for capitalists you know, like, what America will be in the future, i.e. to him, like, fascism, or you're going to fight for, like, America now, which is just capitalism, like, kind of like, you know, a couple decades before what happened in Germany. Um, and it's interesting when he kind of talks about, like, you get some of this in bourgeois history, the, like, diplomatic, like, games that were played when Germany was, like, kind of bouncing back after World War One, because, like, obviously... Uh, the England, like England and the UK and everybody, like they wanted a check on France and like France, like, you know, they didn't really want that, but they were like, okay, with Germany kind of being built up to like a certain extent, they obviously didn't want anything horrible, but he's basically making an argument there that like the inherent contradictions of capitalism, like point to these things just happening, whether like the bourgeoisie want them to or not. And in this case, he makes the point that, like, bourgeoisie the world over, like, did want German fascism to happen. But, like, yeah. It's it's pretty gnarly in the second essay when he gets into, like, now that the war's over and Germany's just completely leveled and he's, like, 
fascist Nazi Germany was everything the bourgeoisie ever wanted. Total power, total order, the complete destruction of the working class movement. And look at you now, you effing idiots. Like, Germany's, like, been leveled. Their people have been reduced to utter poverty, and you've been embarrassed on the world stage. It's very gnarly. <laughs> that, night, that second one, he was definitely gloating a bit. <laughs> it's certainly the case that the, vice, the central element to his argument is... If fascism is an extension, a continuation of capitalism, if it's kind of like capitalism by other means, mm. if it is capitalism pushed push to the point where it has to... Fight for survival. Yeah, it's basically says. like yeah, capitalism in a position of fighting for its own survival kind of thing. Mm. Um, he, he suggests that the, main, the primary objective of fascism was the destruction of the organized working class. Um, he sort of almost like pushes everything else to the to the side in a way which um, feels a bit extreme. Although I think it's an in, it's intended just to further a very specific and particular argument, which um, I'm willing to buy into. Yeah. <laughs> um, and therefore, like, um, yeah, you're right to say like he's he is saying that. Um, Fascism is a reaction to a certain state of affairs in Germany and um, it's almost impossible for the sort of like bourgeois democratic regime in Germany to properly face down the threat of the organised working class and to face down the threat of quote-unquote Bolshevism. Yeah. Um, and therefore they need this sort of like extraordinary regime to come into place to... Um, sort of discipline society more broadly, but in particular to sort of like dissipate this threat, to destroy this threat. Um, and he sort of suggests that that's fascism's primary objective was the mm. destruction of the work, the organised working class, but also they were celebrated both by the German bourgeoisie, but then also in this peculiar game by the British state and the British bourgeoisie, by the French state and the yeah. French bourgeoisie, uh, to some extent by the US as mm. well. Um, and there's a lot of places where like, you get, I, I'm not sure because like, you get the impression that the, the British and the French and the Americans to some extent thought that a certain degree of appeasement mm. would sort of keep Hitler in his place. There was a, <laughs> for, for the British ruling class, should we say, there was a, a good, a reasonable version of Hitler's rule of Germany and the sort of like um, extended sphere of influence across Central and Eastern Europe, which they were quite happy with. And it was only when he sort of like crossed certain bounds that um, he became in some ways problematic. But he sort of like does a lot to... yeah. <laughs> that guy, he's problematic. <clears throat> Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's me speaking from the standpoint of yeah, the British bourgeoisie. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Somewhat problematic. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, what? The, how syphilitic was that Churchill quote where he said, um, "This is like in 1938 or something," when he was like, "Boy, I tell you what, if we had lost World War One, I, I, I would have wished we had a Hitler to dig us out of that mess." It's just like, oh. Yeah. 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 Every time there's like a Churchill quote, it just sucks. It's yeah, just yeah, like yeah. the worst take possible. Yeah. Because like 
And yeah, what I was going to say was that like there is this narrative in 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 mainstream mainstream historiogra- historiography of this period, which sort of like condemns the um, appeasement of the British government at that time mm. as being sort of representative of a degree of weak willedness, you know, mm. an unwillingness to go up against the sort of like this bully boy Hitler. And it took <laughs> Churchill to come along, the sort of arch anti impeachment advocate to sort of come and sort of stand up for Britain and like give Jerry a bloody nose, you know. And, <laughs> and clap for our brave yeah. uh, RAF soldiers. <laughs> um, but this is a lot to sort of like severely dispel and dismantle that kind of like yeah. slightly crude analysis which were sort of like it puts appeasement in a particular context um and also sort of does some amount to dismantle this sort of mystique around uh winston churchill as being yeah. like uh entirely anti-fascist anti-hitlerist you know yeah. i mean there is that quote exactly about like i don't know whether it's in regards to the end of the first world war or whether they should they have? Should they lose the Second World War? He's hoping mm. that some, okay. a, 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 maybe, hopefully, Britain can find a Hitler to restore the honor <laughs> of Great Britain. Christ. You know, kind of thing. Um, well, and there are there are there is another quote as well of him being sort of like <laughs> relatively kind toward Hitler in some ways. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so there you go. He's gross. Yeah. Um, it yeah. To be fair though, I did like that there was a bit of nuance because like when we read that first part of the devil's chessboard there was not much nuance in this analysis it was purely like the american ruling class other than a couple of old school new dealers like wanted nazism and they you know they were like hell yeah here's a barrier against bolshevism and one that we can make money on by doing fanta or whatever right but he says I, I, this was right at the beginning of that f- second essay he says naturally the german bourgeois and the yunkers did not want fascism They preferred to rule themselves without these upstarts, but they couldn't do it. The old bourgeois ideology was exhausted. It couldn't hold the nation together any longer. So it is, it is like, you know, that just furthers his point about like fascism is capitalism up against a wall fighting for its life. It's like, yeah, nobody really wants to do fascism, but like if we got to do fascism, it's better than workers, right? Yeah, this was the argument that Ralph Miliband put forward when we were reading mm. that book, was that like, this is not it's not the desired state of affairs yeah. for the capitalist kind of thing. But I think, I think Miliband's case was that you don't actually know what these people are going to do once you put them in power kind of thing. Yeah. It's a real gambit. And also it does like... Um, disrupt in a lot of ways the functioning of capitalism i mean one of the features of fascism was that it was german nazi fascism was that it um severe well not severely but it it put in place limits on the degree of profiteering that could be done by capitalists Mm. um I mean, it guaranteed profits in a lot of ways it sort of like stabilized the system and um well, it's authoritarian, right? It kind of yeah. like it used a degree of authoritarian control. It guaranteed certain profits to capitalists. It, but but at the same time, like extracted certain dividends from capitalists to pay for its sort of expansionist yeah. jobs program and the primarily military. for its sort of military expansionism. Um, and then it used its suppression of the working class to um, increase 
the profitability of German capitalism by reducing the wages that were given to the German worker. Yeah. Um, so therefore, it did do something to like it both curtailed the free operation of the German capitalists, but was also like, don't worry, we are intending to try and preserve the system. You know, like we do want to maintain <laughs> yeah. German capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> like, don't worry, don't, guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is his whole idea, right, where he puts fascist Germany into its historical context by going like way far back because he's like, okay, what has Hitler done? The Blitzkrieg for the military and the Blitzkrieg for the economy, basically. And then he goes on to have some other Blitzkrieg analogies, but he basically says that like, because Germany was never as inherently wealthy as like this island nation, basically like on the Atlantic and France that had all of these Atlantic ports, it could never like develop capitalism in the same way. And he says that like, you know, it had to be statified or whatever from like a very early stage. He basically, you know, he says something along the lines of like German capitalism grew up since its infancy, like uh, protected by tariffs and protected by all this different stuff. And they had to be fairly self-sufficient or at least more so than like England could be, right? could afford to be, right? And so he says that like, you know, Hitler just inherited this like militaristic apparatus as well as like the economy, right? That was in place going back a very, very long time. So it was very easy to have this like fascist merger of, you know, the corporate state basically. Um, and so that again, just dispels this idea of Hitler being this like wonderkind who was able to come along and like, you know, rise Germany from the ashes. And it makes you think, like, did Churchill just not get that? Did he not recognize that? Or was he just being cheeky? Like, I don't know. It makes no sense. I mean, again, just speaking about, like, this idea, this, like, fetishizing of Hitler as, like, this, you know, super guy. Like, he he, he does something awesome, which is where he compares him to Napoleon, <clears throat> which is kind of weird a little bit because he was, like, damn Napoleon, there was a real one, right? Like Napoleon went around spreading bourgeois ideology all over the place and he did it through pure like strength of will. And that's like, all right, like, all right, CLR <laughs> James, like calm down a little bit. But he's basically making the point that like Napoleon got to where he was <clears throat> after like the Italian campaign where he showed what he could do and that he was like a legitimately talented general and a legitimately talented uh, statesman once he got to that place. And he was like a born leader of people or whatever. But Hitler was not that at all. He says, look at where Hitler was a year before the first coup. He was just like a house painter and like a schmuck. And like, sure, he had this ability to like speak to people and like do good speeches or whatever. But like, that's not going to raise the German state from like where it was or whatever. Um, so he basically says that like, that speaks to nothing if not the bourgeoisie, like, fully supporting him and using these stormtroopers as just, you know, a way to just batten down the working class. Like, these stormtroopers didn't just work for free. They were all paid for, and they weren't paid for by Hitler. So I think that's just basically his way of saying, you know, calm down people who, like, really liked Hitler, like a Churchill, or even, like, the post-war, like, Americans looking back on it and being, like... He was a bad guy, but, you know, he was able to, you know, whip up these people into a big frenzy because that just ties into the ideology of not having to look at the material circumstances at all and just blaming it on Hitler and being like, don't look at the workers' movement. Don't look at any of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he describes Hitler as a social phenomenon, right? Like, yeah. He is an extension of um, social life of, or the sort of, I guess, the political, economic, social life of... Mm -hmm. Europe at the time it's not even specific to Germany right like 
Um, but he's but he's saying that like he is basically put in place by um, German conservatives who are sort of like losing control of the situation. He says that actually Hitler's power within Germany over the over that the the his constituency, I suppose, his sort of electoral base and his significance to German politics had already started to wane by like 1932 and he was basically rehabilitated and put in place by German conservatives in 1933 and there's an extension to which his mystique and his power is also built up by the way that the broader European and sort of global powers relate to him in the same way kind of thing so um, he's definitely portrayed in this essay as sort of like somebody who is thoroughly enabled by the society and the power establishment around him both nationally and internationally Mm. Um, there's a there's an interesting essay i read a long time ago i think it was i think it was by young and it's him talking about powerful people right and we kind of came across this in the devil's chessboard because he was like the shrink for his mistress for alan dulles's mistress which was very odd but he's talking about hitler and he's talking and about his wife as well wasn't it? And his wife I don't as well. Know. very odd very odd young weird it's guy very, it's very very um, i don't know it's very cl- sort of like classic uh <laughs> european turn of the century bourgeoisie I think. yeah Just it like, is yeah <laughs> It's very classically like it's like it's very it's a it's a it's a it's a quote unquote coincidence that you would expect to find in the history of psychoanalysis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> but he basically he makes the point that he was like at a dinner with Hitler and Mussolini, which is odd, just on its own. But he says that like man, Mussolini, what a guy! Can't help but like Mussolini. He was just like a he was like a warlord, classic warlord, just big, powerful, strong, and just like. F yeah, Mussolini. Odd. But then he says, like, Hitler is just a freak. Just a straight-up sociopath freak. And he's like, he walks into a room and you're like, get me out of the room with this guy. So, he's, I don't know, he's basically saying, saying he's making this argument about, like, shamanism or whatever. <laughs> Which is a little like, whoa, okay, all right. But, um... I feel like Jordan Peterson makes a lot more sense to me after that. <laughs> <laughs> it's our values, Dan. This happened because they got rid of their values. <laughs> But anyway, where's I going with that? I don't know. It's just more ideological crap, isn't it? Of like, he was able to take on these neuroses of the people. It's like, I mean, he killed all the communists and like all of the social democrats and everybody uh, involved uh, in doing anything good in that country. Does that lead us to like the big question that looms over this? <laughs> Which is like, he's making a revolutionary defeatist argument, like don't go fight in the war. But it's like, did he know about the Holocaust? <laughs> like, did he know what was going on? And if he did, would that have changed his attitude? Um, a question to ponder, perhaps. Certainly, yeah. I mean, this was... <laughs> this was... It's more that second piece from 1940, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. May 1940. Um, and he says that certain things which downplay the unique horrors of... Nazi Germany, particularly in comparison to the Soviet Union, he's also yeah. almost making a case that like the Soviet Union in some ways is worse. Yeah. Now, specific to the argument that's being made in that section, I think we sort of understand what he's going after, right? Basically, mm. all he's trying to do is he's berating the so-called sort of defenders of democracy 
in the West, the US, sort of France, the mm. UK, for the types of alliances it makes with uh, authoritarian rulers and demagogues and what have you. And they'll be like, just, they will frit back and forth between allying with whoever they please. And like, it's indicative of their sort of like, um, immorality or their sort of like yeah uh hypocrisy i suppose yeah kind of thing. and they know it so we, kind of what he's saying yeah 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 so we kind of understand what argument it is that he's trying to make yeah but um <laughs> as a as a broader question because in some ways like the the anti-semitism that he was certainly aware of as being mm. a feature of uh german fascism or fascism more broadly it's almost like he chalks it up to some degree of peculiarity to the sort of ideology of the underpinned German fascism, which allowed it to take hold of German society in the way that it did, which allowed it to achieve its ultimate aim, which is stabilizing capitalism, destroying the organized working class. Now, from a certain standpoint, I I agree with the argument that he's trying to make, right? But it's almost it's almost like from a from a specific standpoint of looking at it in terms of the question of the sort of historic unfolding of the capitalist mode of production and its various crises mm. and um, ha- what capitalism and what the the sort of organized factions of capitalism will do to stabilize the system to preserve their profits and their viability sure it's a really sound argument they will make an ally with whoever they'll make packs yeah, with yeah. What, whatever devil um and it it's probably it's, it's certainly sound argument on uh, uh, a sound argument to say to look at german fascism and not see it as an aberration in relationship to um, the position that capitalism was in at the time and the, the relationship that the broader European capitalist establishment took toward Nazi Germany was certainly tinged with this idea of, God, we wish we could do this to our working class kind of thing. <laughs> we wish we kind of had this authoritarian streak within us mm. we recognise that the German working class, the German organised workers movement um, was a threat more broadly, more broadly to European stability, and we're grateful that somebody's come along and done it. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I guess my general question is: Can you keep the two apart mm-hmm. in terms of like that narrative around the relationship of fascism to capitalism? And but at a certain point, do does the the reality of the horrors of the Holocaust? gain such preeminence in our vision that sort of like um the argument that CLO James is trying to put forward falls apart in in some way or yeah uh, if not how do you reconcile the two kind of thing yeah um, i mean i don't know if that just really even gets down to like the big question which is like he's pretty gung ho about being like don't fight for the capitalists to fight the other capitalists sure. and it's like Okay, dude, now what do you think? Because it's like... I mean, I don't know what to extract from this in relationship to the question of defeatism. Yeah. 
Well, I think there are, there are several other essays you wrote before this where he is like, don't do it, stay home, fight for socialism here, which is would seem to be a very level-headed thing to say, perhaps, if that's what was happening, if that's all it was. But it's like, I don't know, if you... If you're in, say, like, Vichy, France or something, like, when are you going to be like, okay, it's okay to fight with the capitalists because, like, get these motherfuckers, like, out of where I live, right? Uh, to say nothing of the fact that it was, like, mainly, like, left-wing underground organizations that did the majority of the fighting uh, there. But it's a bigger question where it's like, look at this atrocity that's going on. It's okay to, like, make a decision to fight with the American capitalists to, like, stop the Holocaust, you know what I mean? And that isn't exactly what he's putting forward here, but I'm just saying that it, like, opens us up to that question. Mm -hmm. Because it's, like, it's always it is okay it's, at a certain point to fight with capitalists if something, like, much worse is yeah. going on. But it's always a hindsight argument in this instance, because although the unfolding holocaust was known to mm -hmm. certain people in certain quarters and amongst <laughs> others the efforts with which to both obscure it from the yeah. sort of decision making parties in the various allied countries and then also to keep it from the public what the, the effort to obscure it and to hide that knowledge little of it that was known to people was extreme and excessive right so like but then it's a very you, american you can't you, you can't be like sure yeah you can't i guess you, you can't say that anybody was like i'm i'm going to join my country's army and fight fascism because i'm fighting against this unfolding holocaust right but i think that's a very american argument in that case right which is what he's doing right but i'm saying like you know, if you lived in London or something during the Blitz, or if you lived, like, again, in Vichy, France, or if you, like, obviously lived anywhere east of Germany, right? Like, then that's a question of, you know, okay, when do I draw the line of, okay, I'll just go fight with the capitalists to fight the other capitalists, right? Because, like, you know, it is a hindsight thing to talk about the Holocaust when it relates to America, but they're also, like, you know, the question of invasions is basically what I'm saying. Like, obviously, if you're in America, most people prior to war actually breaking out between, like, everybody was like, maybe, come on, we don't want to get involved in, like, another one of these stupid European wars. And it literally took Pearl Harbor for that to actually change people's minds, I guess, or at least make America join the war. So, like, yes, it's a hindsight question historically when you're talking about the Holocaust in America, but, like, for most other countries, it kind of wasn't, you know what I mean? But that, again, doesn't really relate to exactly what that question is so you know what are you gonna do mm. yeah um <laughs> it would have been interesting to have him talk a little bit about japan in this as well because he kind of doesn't at all um he brings it up very briefly to talk about like kind of hitler's geopolitical movements and stuff but whenever you get these kind of like arguments about fascism and stuff you never you never really hear too much about japan i feel like in world war ii and it would have been interesting to hear about like fascist japan as well but as well as that just wasn't what he was talking about he wanted to talk specifically just about hitler so what are you gonna do um one of the things that occurred to me when i was thinking about this essay in terms of or the argument that was being presented in terms of defeatism 
and the differences that are apparent or that are sort of emerge from the history that's presented in this essay between World War One and World War Two, and the applicability of that strategy of defeatism. What occurred to me was that, like, during World War One, there were in some ways workers' movements in all the belligerent countries that could engage in this strategy as presented by Lenin, i.e. actively working to undermine your country's ability to fight the war by propagating and advocating for communism within the military and actually trying to actively aim toward um, a refusal to fight from people in the military. The, the sort of adage of like turning imperial war into revolution into like civil war given that the narrative of this essay is so much like the efforts of the the sort of bourgeois establishment of all of these western european countries to suppress their working classes to decrease their revolutionary capacity was the situation the same you know was there any kind of organized workers revolutionary force that could be in a position in during world war ii to actually actively engage in a defeatist strategy or to transform the crisis of capitalism into a revolutionary crisis into the civil war that was advocated for by lenin which brings us on to one of those pieces of the history of this essay, which I wasn't really aware of, which is the events in France in the 1930s. Um, C.R.L.R. James is suggesting that there was... France was very close to a revolutionary moment in the 1930s. Um, the There was sort of like huge... Um, a huge upswing in support for the Socialist and Communist Party. Membership of trade unions and the Communist Party swelled um, amidst sort of like general crisis of capitalism at the time. Um, there was a sort of like united front between the socialists and the communists um, to sort of stabilise French democracy in a lot of ways. Now, CLR James is very scornful of the united front as it played out in... Um, in France at the time, basically because what it led to was the united force of the communists and the socialist parties actively deflating the revolutionary energy of the masses at a certain crucial point and turning their, the united front towards being something which is designed purely to preserve French democracy and to not to transition it into some kind of broader revolutionary period of time, revolutionary phase or what have you. Um, which meant that by the time we got to 1939, 1940, that sort of like revolutionary enthusiasm had ebbed in such a way that France and the French communists and socialist parties weren't really in a position to fight fascism or to, to resist it in some way. And that sort of made me think in line with this idea of there being this process of the undermining of the European working class and the organized European working class in the run up to first to the first to the Second World War rather, 
whether whether the sort of like truly revolutionary moment of this period wasn't 1939 to 45 it wasn't resulting from the war but it was this kind of like period of the crisis of capitalism beforehand um and in one of these really interesting alternate history moments of this essay there's a period where there's a sort of discussion where he's like had um france had some kind of socialist revolution in the 1930s had france then aided the spanish republic to defeat franco what kind of alternate scenario does that set us up for does it prevent second world war from unfolding as it does he seems to suggest that yes it would it would have sort of put hitler back in his box and kind of like diminished his um power and the threat that he posed kind of thing um so I don't know, yeah, in terms of like revolutionary defeatism, like maybe the moment had passed before the Second World War came along and maybe some other type of strategy was more appropriate to that moment in time. I mean, you pointed out to me before that uh, CLA James is actually writing to perhaps an American audience where this question of defeatism could be reflected on differently as opposed to amongst a European audience. Yeah, I mean, I think... I don't know if he's really being as holistic as he thinks he is in this. I think that, like, he thinks he's writing this, like, grand history of, like, everything that happened and is, like, encompassing, like, talking to everybody. Everybody can take something from this essay. But I think he is pretty clearly just writing for an American audience and, like, from an American point of view, if that makes sense. Like... Kind of what I was trying to get at was, like, the idea of revolutionary defeatism is a very different one depending on where you were, right? Like, in America, it was a, you had the luxury of being, like, you know, it's just another another one of these European wars. Who cares? It's just World War One all over again. It's just imperialism. They do this every, you know, 70 years or so, whatever. Who cares? Um, but, like, everywhere else, it was a pretty different question. And he touches on that briefly but he doesn't really like get into the weeds, I guess, because it's not really the purpose of his essay, but it's like, yeah, extraordinarily different question in France because like communists were still around and still blowing up Nazi rail lines and still like going around and like fighting the good fight. I mean, they got to goal at the end of it, so they didn't exactly get like a socialist, but like, you know, it's very different depending on where you were. And I think that he is kind of just writing for Americans here. And because he has that luxury, too. It wouldn't be very interesting if it was like, what attitude should we take in Paris towards Hitler? It's like, what do you mean, what attitude should you take? Like, go kick his ass, you know what I mean? Yeah, and fight with the goal if that's what it means. But, like, yeah. I think it is very American in mm -hmm. its outlook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like I should moderate my um, statement so far slightly to, to acknowledge the fact that there certainly were sort of organized socialists and communists active mm. in Europe during the Second World War. Sure. But not like revolutionary socialists, right? Like you yeah, couldn't exactly... or maybe they had revolutionary intentions, but they yeah. weren't on the they weren't at the point where they were they they were in the position to actually revolutionarily overthrow anything. It was like socialists in the south of France being like, finally we got rid of Paris. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> but yeah, they there there were there were avowedly socialist brigades sure. fighting fascism yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah something i'd like to know more about honestly yeah um because i know that like whenever you hear about like in bourgeois histories of like the french underground movement <laughs> it's like these brave people did this daring commando raid and it's like oh who were they 
they're like, <clears throat> they're the communists that were still in France. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, all right, cool. Um, yeah, that's sort of like the French resistance gets all the sort of like yeah. celebratory praise, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I went to, in Paris, they have this, what is the military museum called? I think it's called Anvalide, and it's, it kind of, I hate to say it kind of kicks ass. It's like actually kind of cool, but like the French resistance rooms are just like, oh, you want to rip your hair out? Because it is purely just like, here's another picture of De Gaulle. There's De Gaulle again. There's De Gaulle. And like oh, over loudspeakers, it's just De Gaulle giving like radio speeches nonstop really loud. And it's just like, oh my God, Jesus, goddamn mm -hmm. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. A museum for the partisans. I'm sure there must be somewhere. <laughs> probably, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. How, uh, it was, the way he starts off one of these essays is he talks about, um, to frame his point about, like, it's all capitalism, dude. Uh, he says that, was it that Germany allowed France enough of an army to maintain its hold on its colonies? That was brutal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was, that was so brutal. He's like, on this, you can see that they agree. And then he's like, <laughs> and they also agree on much more. That was brutal, dude. Oh my God. Well, that, I mean, that's his whole thing about um, this being another inter-imperialist war and mm. uh, a turn toward imperialism and an increased exploitation of um, colonial holdings by imperialist powers being the sort of ultimate um, form, the ultimate extension of capitalism as it existed in that period of time mm -hmm. and being the result of the 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 capitalist crisis as it unfolded necessitated this further and further sort of expansion and exploitation kind of thing mm. um there's one curious point in this where he's almost like making a case for america to join the war in the sense that he's saying that like you shouldn't look at Hitler and say all he wants to do is control a certain portion of Western Europe and be content. Yeah. And he's saying that, like, <laughs> Hitler's aspirations are cl clearly have an eye towards South America kind of thing. Mm. And he's sort of speculating on the possibility of some kind of conflict between America and Germany, sort of future imperialist or inter-imperialist mm. conflicts should... Um, so ger should Germany win the war, right? He's sort of p painting this sort of, like... Uh, imperialist future predicated on um an understanding of the present stage of capitalism which comes from lenin although he does suggest that like there might be a new stage of capitalism developing which is a kind of like bu heavily bureaucratized and statized um almost like state capitalist uh version of capitalism which might supersede this imperial mode that yeah. he still his analysis is sort of like um drawing on so heavily kind of thing yeah i think that's interesting though because like when we were talking about who am i gonna say the ellen meeksons would <laughs> and the origins of capitalism when she bought up like to make her point that this is just a goddamn historical aberration fluke you know like there's the absolutist stuff and there were also like back in the day there were the front the italian city states as being like these kind of like similar things to capitalism, but not capitalism. And like you could have seen history going in a different direction with kind of any one of these, although they all had their own internal contradictions as well. But like, I don't think it really helps anybody if you're trying to study history critically to be like fascism, 
Hitler, Franco, Mussolini, all same guy. Because, like, obviously they shared extremely, like, obvious characteristics. Um, but also, like, it, it doesn't help, I think, to be like, this is just a fait accompli of history, right? Maybe I'm kind of coming down against C.L.R. James a little bit here because he makes the point, like, America's next. America's going to do fascism next. Just you watch when it, you know, crumbles and everything starts to go to shit. It's going to do it as well. Um, but, like, all three of those fascist uh, governments all had their differences and were all, like... Like, for example, Franco came to power after the country was destroyed, right? Basically, like, at the end of a very long civil war in which everyone, like, was either dead who wanted to not do fascism or they just had no power anymore. Hitler, he says, came to power because everything was, like, kind of just, like, given to him and it all just kind of fell into his lap and there was already the statification, as he calls it, and it was already, you know, kind of like that. Mussolini, I don't know too much about, but, like... These things are very different is the point that I'm trying to make. And although they still have these like very similar characteristics, there's nothing that says that American capitalism is going to do this. You can very easily imagine American capitalism doing something very similar. And hey, perhaps like we see a lot of like fascist Germany, not to be like, whoa, dude, but like in the like current model of imperialist America. But like whenever history does something, it's never going to be exactly the same as like, you can never point to something else and be like, oh, here, it's doing that thing because it's always going to be different. And if there is anything to like the comparison of fascism to what America is doing now, you can make comparisons, but you also have to recognize like still very different. And like, that doesn't mean it's like better or worse or whatever. Like that doesn't really matter. But like to think about it strategically, you have to notice these differences, right? And you have to notice that like, America differs from fascist Italy or fascist Spain in these ways, but it's quite similar in these ways. And I think you can use like historical materialism as a guide to be like, how did we get here and where are we going? But at the end of the day, like you do have to use historical materialism as well to like see the nuances and intricacies of like how all of these things are different. Mm -hmm. But America's going there. <laughs> uh, well, it feels like it's an extension of the question of like uh, continuity and change in the yeah, analysis yeah, yeah. of history there's another sub level of that which is like what things are analogous and at what th what point do they differ and i guess it's the question is what level of analysis are you doing kind of thing what degree of generality and at a certain point all generalities break down yeah when you face sort of next level of specificity as you sort of yeah uh, look more closely kind of thing i think in, in the in in terms of his um argumentation around the prospects for american fascism or mm. authoritarianism or what have you. I think that sort of fits in with the alternate history, which says you've got this sort of like Nazified Europe <laughs> and you've got a United States, North America, and I guess you still have mm. the Soviet Union kind of thing. You have these three large sort of like imperialist powers, which he sees developing in a way much more akin to the history of the preceding 45 or 50 years, as opposed to what we actually got, which was, yes, to a world divided between two powers, but in the capitalist world, you get an American hegemon who, in the process of rebuilding Europe, is put in this incredibly powerful position of, like, having 
expanded all this capital on fighting a war but not actually suffered any of the resulting destruction from war and is now mm. in a position to exploit this unique position in capitalism whereby there's all this work to be done rebuilding and it leads to this enormous economic boom um it leads to a different uh, solution to the quote unquote sort of like problem of the working class as it's experienced by the, the bourgeoisie right like the US was in a position to almost buy off its working class, as was the UK, as was the British government in the case mm. of like being able having the Labour Party come in in 1945, yeah. using the proceeds of imperialism to fund the building of the 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 welfare state and the NHS kind of thing. Mm. So you have this different history that unfolds and had history unfolded in some other way, maybe there is a sort of route toward American fascism yeah. that wasn't a wasn't I mean, I guess I guess the underlying um the underlying idea is that like fascism or the resort or resorting to some kind of similar or analogous authoritarianism is never above and beyond. Sure the sort of tactical repertoire of very desperate capitalism. Kind of Especially thing. when you like take for granted that statification is inevitably going to happen and, you know, the inherent contradictions of capitalism are going to lead towards crisis, right? It's like the bourgeoisie is going to do something. But I think just saying like it's going to be fascism, I don't know. Maybe yeah, I just yeah. haven't come across a good definition of fascism yet, but yeah. like it's okay to just be like it's gonna be bad yeah without yeah. because you're just opening yourself up to being like really america's as bad as hitler you know what i mean when it's sure. like sure, sure, sure. come on you know what i mean like yeah. it's just the, the crises of capitalism yeah i think what he almost what he means by fascism is just authoritarian capitalism yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but yeah you're right that we we should look into uh, <laughs> should we should develop this. our understanding of fascism <laughs> yeah uh what it means as a political ideology yeah because uh, i know mussolini was just like it's just state and corporate that's fascism <laughs> and it's like we were just describing what happens under capitalism <laughs> it's like when you run out of like the free market or whatever um yeah mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. i think there is a a, a broader um argument to be made i suppose or an observation to be made of sort of i guess i, I want to sort of like generalize wildly and say sort of like um the development of trotskyist theoretizing theorizing <laughs> theorizing right. i wanted to i wanted to blend theoretician and theorizing <laughs> theoretizing no um in terms of like or maybe it's like broad. Maybe it's more broadly indicative of uh, revolutionary and Marxist theory in decline in some ways, where you get very stuck into a particular mode, and what you expect from the future is very similar to your understanding of the past. Um, I certainly know that it's possible to level against um, the sort of like organized Trotskyism of that period as being um, seeing the world on the cusp of a revolutionary moment similar to what it was in 1917, 1918, 1920, that it just sort of wasn't. Yeah. Um, and I think some of that is very representative, represented very well in some of this writing. Yeah. Um, 
But that said, excellent essays. Yeah, they really I were. I enjoyed them both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're creeping towards modern day, and it's freaking me out, because I'm like, whoa, my grandparents were alive for what he's talking about. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, my God. It's funny, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of, like, ink spilt about revolutionary defeatism now, and it's like, at least in America, like, why is that necessary? Yeah. It's extreme. It's easier now than it's ever been to be like, why on earth would you need to support any of this? If liberals can say you don't have to support this, then like, you know, we don't have to be like, mm -hmm. wow, we need to go to war with ISIS. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, come on. Yeah. Why is there an ISIS in the first place? Because of all this bullshit. <laughs> Who was just giving ISIS guns? You know what I mean? It's like, God damn it. <laughs> uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, all right. How are we doing? Yeah, I think we're doing good. Um, yeah. I think we've talked enough about war for some time being. <laughs> for a good period of time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, right? Because the question of like, yes, obviously. I mean, this is a whole nother can of worms and we should actually find something where we can talk about this more in depth. But like, if you're on the left, nobody likes war, duh, obviously. But also like, as socialists, we're right now, I think we're dipping our toes into the idea of like, okay, but war exists. How do we relate to that? And then also like, okay, but there's going to be a class war. What does that mean? Um, is freaking because like obviously you never want to be a guy who's like I can't wait for the class war dude I can't wait to start <laughs> busting some heads hell yeah dude um, that person's bad mm. but also like the listener can't see me shrug but I'm shrugging he's shrugging <laughs> folks let's not forget the class war is all about us yeah the class there you struggle go. happens all the time every there day there you go yeah yeah, yeah. so you so. don't need an excuse to no <laughs> <laughs> Oh no! Uh -huh, uh -huh. What we what did we almost say on one of our last episodes? Anything anti-capitalist is. Oh wait, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait a minute though, because minute. Uh -oh. because what I was suggesting last week was that <laughs> um, German fascism in some way was, was anti-capitalist, anti whereas what as we, we had proven this week is yeah. certainly not the case. Exactly. Just because they call themselves socialists. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that I forgot they that were could, socialists. That can be extended a lot further, can't it? Like, yeah. just because somebody calls themselves yeah. socialists. Well, it's also like all of the reactionary bullshit now, even the like militia movement stuff. It's like, say, say you're as anti-capitalist as you want, folks. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> uh, I don't know. All right. Um, well, we will be reading something next week. Uh huh. It will be good. Um, yeah. I think it will. Yeah. And um, we it's will be all right. Yeah, and we will be finishing uh, evolutionary strategy at some point soon. So if you're waiting on the edge of your seat for that, <laughs> it's coming. Um, I am tenter hooks. Tenter hooks. Yeah, that's what it is. Isn't it? That's tenter hooks. Tender hooks. Tender hooks. I don't know. I did. Let us know, folks. Let us know in the comments. <laughs> rate five stars and let us know in the comments. Um, yes. All right. Well. Uh, well, yes. I've been Jack. All right, yes. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, yes. Yes. Well, all right. All right. Well, I've been Jack, and this has been Auxiliary Statements. Now you know all you need to know to go argue with your boomer uncle at Thanksgiving about World War II. You're gonna be like, "But the workers' movement," and he'll be like, <laughs> "Did you know about the Panzer D nine six five two seven four three two and what it could do?" And you'll be like, "All right, whatever." <laughs> but then you'll be but. like, "Isn't painting miniatures cool?" Because I like Warhammer, and he'll be like, "Have you seen all of the fine?" collection of panzers that i've <laughs> and you'll be like now we can bond socialism works <laughs> bonding over toy tanks <laughs> socialism is about simply coming to an understanding that toy tanks actually kind of cool <laughs> all 
right. Well, I'm not uh, astute inside. <laughs> um, get painting your miniatures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Practice what we preach. It's a bit late. To, it's a bit early to wish people a happy Thanksgiving. It happy is. Halloween. Happy Halloween. I guess. <laughs> uh, it's nearly Guy Fawkes night. Oh yeah, it is. It will be Guy Fawkes night when we put this out. Yeah. Happy Guy Fawkes night. Happy Happy Bonfire night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that before we go, I'd like to get to the bottom of that the gunpowder plot. Like, okay. Because it. I don't get it. I mean, they were all just religious, weren't they? They're all yeah. just fanatics. Yeah. So, yeah, all right. Yeah. There you go. We got to the bottom of it. It's like Catholics and Protestants. He was Catholic, right? The gunpowder plotters, they were, they were Catholics. Oh, God, I really don't want I to get this so. wrong. <laughs> I think they were. Yeah. 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 Yes. yeah. Popery, huh? Smacks of popery to me. <laughs> right. Popery, like Smacks of popery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> anyway, we've become delirious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I've been Dan. This has been a delivery statement. Thanks so much for listening. And I've been Jack. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs> the music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.